So we ended up requesting what was left of her newborn dry blood spot, which was, they save it in Michigan. We're so lucky. They save it at the state lab. And I had that sent to the University of Washington, where they did a PCR on it and found millions of copies of CMV, which confirmed the diagnosis. And then, you know, we kind of, we went down that path. We got, she had imaging of her head done and found out that she had some, you know, severe intracranial sequelae and involvement, which is just like mind boggling. So this, you know, perfect little baby actually fell into the severe symptomatic category of CMV or the worst possible, you know, um, when they categorize the severity. Listen as Dr. Megan Pesch share her journey on becoming a parent advocate and a researcher in cytomegalovirus, also called CMV. Dr. Pesch is an assistant professor of developmental and behavioral pediatric at the University of Michigan where she is the director of Congenital CMV Developmental Follow-Up Clinic. Dr. Pesh completed her medical school training, residency, and fellowship at the University of Michigan. She is board certified in developmental and behavioral pediatrics and serves as the president-elect of the National CMV Foundation. Dr. Pesh's youngest daughter has a profound bilateral sensorineural hearing loss from congenital CMV, and this led to her involvement in national advocacy efforts to ensure that all newborns receive CMV screening. Dr. Pesh's clinical interests involved the early diagnosis and treatment of congenital CMV using a multidisciplinary approach with a focus on family care and support. While her research focuses on healthcare provider practices around congenital CMV diagnosis and management, and the understanding the relationship between autism and CMV. The month of June is CMV Awareness Month. Please visit the National CMV Foundation to learn more about the advocacy efforts in CMV in your area and how you can support newborn screening for CMV. Hello, this is the Newborn Screening Spotlight. This podcast is about the advancement of rare disease research told by health professionals, researchers, parents, and advocates. This podcast is for you to learn how newborn screening research saves the lives of babies every day through the discovery of new technology and treatment. You will hear stories from experts who treat babies, the families who care for them, and the researchers who make it all happen. We are your co-hosts. I am Dr. Ki Chan. And I'm Dr. Amy Brower. We're from the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network, also known as the MDSTRN. Our work is supported by one of the institutes at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, called the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, also known as NICHD. Dr. Chan and I are from the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics, also known as ACMG, and ACMG leads the MBSTRN. Screening babies saves lives every day, and research advances newborn screening by developing new technologies to screen, diagnose, and treat. MBSTRN helps accelerate research 
by creating tools, resources, and expertise for researchers, doctors, families, patients, and advocates. To learn how you can help advance newborn screening research, advocate for rare disease screening and treatment, and learn about important discovery, become a member of the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network by visiting our website at www.mbstrn.org. Today, we welcome Dr. Megan Pesh. Hello, Dr. Pesh. Thank you so much for joining us today for our podcast interview. We're so delighted to have you here. You are currently an assistant professor of developmental and behavioral pediatrics and the director of the congenital CMV developmental follow-up clinic at the University of Michigan. Can you tell us, our listener, more about CMV and how it impacts mothers, their babies, and families? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's great to be able to be here and share a little bit more about CMV. So yeah, it's a mouthful, cytomegalovirus, CMV. So when I talk to families about CMV, you know, I'll typically describe it as a common cold-like virus. It's, it's everywhere. So by the time Americans are like middle age, you know, in their like 40s, 50s, most people have already come into contact with CMV somewhere in their lives. It's a virus that's transmitted through bodily fluids like saliva or urine. You can get it from kissing, sharing drinks with people. So really when it's transmitted from person to person, most often it's no big deal. Uh, most often in uh, healthy people, they get very minimal symptoms, like maybe a sore throat, maybe some fatigue, maybe some lymph nodes being swollen, but actually most people have no symptoms at all. We worry about it when kind of in two big scenarios. One, when people have suppressed immune systems, so the immunocompromised um, population, so people going through chemo or organ transplants, and then, um, you know, where my passion is, is congenital CMV. So when uh, individuals are pregnant, it's not so harmful to the pregnant person. But if it is passed through the placenta to the growing fetus, that's when the virus can really wreak a lot of havoc and impacts that um, developing fetal brain. And so that's the, the congenital part. So if the baby is born infected with CMV, that's what we call congenital CMV, which is really, really different than if someone gets CMV after birth, even a baby at two or three weeks old, you know, the impact is so different. So babies born with CMV, there is a huge range of outcomes. So thank goodness, most babies do really, really well. They grow up and have normal developmental outcomes. They thrive, but there is a subset and it's around 25 to 30% who will go on to have long-term disabilities from this infection. Things we think about kind of most often is a hearing loss, but kids can also have you know, cerebral palsy, epilepsy, really anything that can result from having, you know, a, a fetal brain impacted during, uh, you know, during in utero development. Yeah, CMV can be, you know, really devastating for families and even families who have babies that are born affected but look completely normal and healthy at birth, you know, those babies are still at risk of developing hearing loss later in childhood. It is scary even 
for families who, you know, have like healthy seeming babies. Thank you so much for sharing with us, Dr. Pesh, about CMV. And just for our listeners to understand the different types of CMV, you had mentioned that there's congenital CMV, but also as an adult, they can contract CMV. Is there a possibility of prenatal CMV? And how can a pregnant woman with CMV handle those symptoms? And is is there anything that they could do to decrease neonatal congenital CMV, just for clarification for our listeners? No, that's a great question. So when we think about CMV infections, um, there are what we call primary infections. So that's the first time a person encounters CMV. So it could be, you know, when you're a toddler or it could be when you're an adult. You know, those primary infections, those um, infections do tend to pass more readily to a fetus if, if, if a woman is pregnant and catches CMV for the first time. You know, there are theories about this, but one of the theories is, you know, there aren't those circulating antibodies to kind of help fight it off and decrease that virus in, in her system. There is also a type of CMV called non-primary CMV, which means either somebody catches a different strain of CMV while they're pregnant or the CMV virus reactivates. So it's kind of like, you know, when we think about viruses that someone can catch and they stay dormant in their system, um, but can reactivate over time, like like a, a herpes virus that, yep, you can get cold sores, right? They just pop up every now and again. It's the same with CMV. But most people, most healthy people, you'd never know if it kind of reactivated in your system. So that's one of the really, really tricky parts about CMV is most people eventually are exposed to it. But then what do you do, you know, when you're pregnant to kind of decrease your risk? The main focus really right now is to decrease women's risk of catching CMV in the first place. And either that first exposure or another exposure to a virus, you know, while you're pregnant or even right before you're going to get pregnant in the months before. So we know CMV is transmitted in bodily fluids, which like sounds, I know it sounds really gross, but it actually is most commonly transmitted in the bodily fluids of toddlers and babies in um, kids in daycare. Because, you know, it's just like, it's like a cesspool, right? (laughs) There are bodily fluids everywhere. (laughs) Like people are slobbering on things and kids are sharing toys. And so when when a child catches, you know, CMV, it, the virus is shed in their saliva and urine for months after they catch that first or that infection. So long, long after those cold sy- symptoms are gone. So one of the kind of biggest public health messages that we're trying to get out there for women to protect themselves against CMV um, in pregnancy is to avoid contact with those bodily fluids. And so what does that mean? It means, you know, avoiding sharing food with your toddler or sharing straws, utensils, um, you know, really double down on that hand washing after diapers, not kissing on the lips, you know, kissing on the cheek, things like that. It's interesting with COVID. I think now since COVID, we are all hyper aware of, um, you know, these hygiene activities outside of the home, right? Um, Because we've all, well, that's what we've been taught and it's been effective for COVID. But inside the home, you know, I think our guards get let down. And so studies have shown that women who have babies with congenital CMV 
those babies tend to have the same viral strains as their siblings, meaning the virus probably came from the sibling to mom to the, to the baby. So that's kind of the biggest message right now. I think there are some really exciting vaccine trials going on right now that you know have vaccine candidates that will target women of childbearing age. You know, a vaccine against CMV would effectively work to decrease women from getting CMV in the first place, or if you've already gotten CMV in the past, boosting that antibody response. So there's a less of a chance of it getting passed to the fetus. Oh, thank you, Dr. Pesh, for that clarification. You are a clinician and a researcher and leads efforts in the Pesh Lab in Michigan Medicine at the University of Michigan. One of your projects brings together a multidisciplinary group of healthcare providers to refer infants who have failed their newborn screening hearing screen for congenital CMV testing. Can you tell us more about this important project and explain how you got involved in newborn screening research? Yeah, absolutely. That is my passion project. I just, I just love it. So about my, I started getting involved in newborn screening research probably about two and a half years ago. So at that time, I was, I was a child obesity researcher. So nothing to do with, with CMV um, at all. But um, I, in 2018, my uh, third daughter was born after a very healthy seeming pregnancy. And, you know, she had, we had a very typical seeming delivery. Things were a little bit rough. So when she was born, she had a few, she, the poor thing, her like face was swollen and she had a few little petechiae or purple spots on her um, forehead you know, as a pediatrician, you see that all the time. Um, so I didn't really think anything of it. And she also, she failed her newborn hearing screen, which I didn't think anything of either. You know, in, um, in pediatrics, it, it's like dogma. Like I had for years told anxious mothers, um, oh, it's no big deal. Most of these are false positives. It's probably just fluid in the ears. Like, I can't tell you how many times those words came out of my mouth. And so after my daughter's rough delivery, we thought, well, of course, <laughs> of course she failed her newborn hearing screen. <laughs> like she still had gunk in her ears. We were, we were like, I, I was determined not to be one of those quote unquote anxious moms. Um, and I, I say that, you know, kind of sarcastically now, because in hindsight, it's like there, there was a lot to worry about. So, um, I mean, you can see where this is going. We took her home. She had, we had kind of a typical seeming first two and a half months. And then I took her in for her repeat newborn um, hearing screen. And at that time, we found out that she had a bilateral profound hearing loss or she, she was, you know, deaf, but she had no hearing when she was a little baby, you know, looking back, she definitely startled when her, her older sisters, you know, were running around or being really noisy. So I think, um, you know, I suspect that she was born with hearing loss, but that her hearing deteriorated pretty quickly. You know, at that time, we were told that it was most likely a genetic cause, which, which is true. That's the most common cause of hearing loss in babies. Um, so we went through genetic testing and, you know, evaluations and started kind of the workup for cochlear implants. 
but, um, you know, I, as a pediatrician, I really wanted to think of kind of all the reasons. And so, um, you know, I brought up congenital CMV, not because I had like this instinct, like, oh, I just knew. No, I didn't. I didn't at all. I, I, um, you know, I'd really thought I was just kind of going down my list in my head of things that I remembered that could be associated with hearing loss. And, you know, I was told that um, by, by professionals that I really, really respect um, that she looked too normal. You know, she was close to an eight pound baby and that that's not how babies with congenital CMV look. Well, kind of fast forward, I ended up um, getting her tested for CMV, but by that time she was four months old. So it showed, yes, she'd had CMV in her system, but when, you know, you can't really tell. Was it, you know, from breast milk after she was born or her sister's? So we ended up requesting what was um, left of her newborn dried blood spot, which was, they save it in Michigan. We're so lucky. They save it at the state lab. And I had that sent to the University of Washington where they did a PCR on it and found millions of copies of CMV, which confirmed the diagnosis. Um, and then, you know, we kind of, we went down that path. We got she had imaging of her head done and found out that she had some, you know, severe intracranial um, sequelae and involvement, which is just like mind boggling. So this, you know, perfect little baby actually fell into the severe symptomatic category of CMV or the worst possible, you know, um, when they categorize the severity. And that just like blew my mind. And it still, it still does. Um, and looking back at the whole experience, you know, as a, like now from the mom side, but also as a provider side, I can totally see why it happened because there was no screening. And so how were, like, how was her pediatrician to know that she had CMV? Because you can't tell by looking at these babies. And so as I kind of got into the literature and was reading more about it, it, it just, it just blew my mind how so many of these babies, and it turns out like 95% of babies with CMV look completely normal. They might have like a little bit of jaundice or a little, like be on a little bit on the smaller side, but that is so, so common. You know, working with my daughter's providers at the institution where she was born, which, which was University of Michigan, you know, we just kind of came together and said, hey, this is a problem. And like, you know, one in 200 babies is born with congenital CMV. So she is not the only one. So really, that's kind of how it started. You know, I, I, I want to be clear, I'm not like motivated from a place of like bitterness that, you know, her diagnosis was missed. Babies with CMV, especially those who are more severe, um, if they are given antiviral medications before they're 31 days of age, that's been shown to improve their hearing and developmental outcomes long-term. So she missed that window. Um, we still did it, you know, but, um, but she missed that window. Uh, but I, I get it. I get why she was missed. So that's why I've been working with this team. There's so many players involved to start, you know, screening babies, at least those who fail their newborn hearing screen, um, because we do know babies with CMV are seven to eight times more likely to fail that screen. 
that newborn hearing screen. And we're hoping to expand to uh, screen even more babies. But, you know, we're kind of working uh, the systems approach. And so we've got ENT involved in ophthalmology, um, neuroradiology, audiology, infectious diseases. Um, so it's really been wonderful to have all these providers come together to solve a, to, you know, try to tackle this problem. Well, Dr. Pesh, I'm so sorry that your youngest daughter got CMV. There was no newborn screening. And, and currently, there is no standard of care or routine mm-hmm. screening for newborns for congenital CMV at birth. So what can parents do if they suspect their baby has CMV? Yeah. So I I think most parents would probably not suspect that their baby has CMV because these babies look perfect. But... Um, you know, that maternal intuition, I've, I've spoken to moms who have requested testing for their baby. Um, and I think what is becoming more standard of care, although it, it isn't officially, I should make that clear, but it's becoming more common is for babies who fail their newborn hearing screen to be then tested for CMV. And so the way a baby can be tested for CMV um, is either it's a urine test. So they put like a little baggie on the baby in the diaper. It looks like a Ziploc bag, but with like a sticky (laughs) side to it. They just stick it on there and wait for the baby to pee. Or there's a saliva swab, which is like a little Q-tip inside the mouth or sorry, inside the cheek in the mouth. And they send that off to test too. So those are the two ways. And most hospitals can facilitate one or the other. Um, there are no blood draws or anything like that that need to be done for screening. So screening is um, pretty straightforward from from that point of view. But I will say that um, provider, like healthcare provider knowledge about CMV is really low. And I'm not wagging my finger at anybody, like myself included, before my daughter was born. It's just not something that even us pediatricians are taught a lot about in um, in our training. And I think part of that reason is just that the research on CMV has really accelerated over the last year. And so the clinical guidelines and guidance and medical school teaching it, it has not quite caught up to that fast growth. So, um, you know, parents can definitely ask about testing their baby for CMV, but um, I think they are likely to meet some resistance. And just because I think the awareness is, is low, some kind of more gentle question asking to your provider, kind of assessing their knowledge, directing them to either the CDC website on CMV or the National CMV Foundation. We have some resources for providers there too. I'd like to empower parents not to just feel like they're being dismissed, but actually like that I think often providers just genuinely don't know about the risks. So you almost have to like educate up <laughs> a little bit. I echo what you meant about the mother's instinct, right? So maybe mm-hmm. like something just seems often, it seems like you also notice that and push forward to find the dry blood spot and mm-hmm. send it to University of Washington. You have mentioned that there are different ways that CME can be detected. What is hearing targeted early CMV, also known as HT-CMV screening? Yeah, exactly. So that's when there's like a a system in place at a hospital or program that automatically screens any baby who fails that newborn hearing screening for CMV. So it's, it's automatic and it doesn't rely on a clinician suspecting CMV because I think that's kind of where 
the disconnect has been is that nobody is, no, I shouldn't say nobody, but it's rare that a clinician suspects CMV because there's nothing visible for the most part that tells a physician that they should be concerned about CMV, you know, for most babies. So we know there's more of an association with hearing loss or even a failed newborn hearing screening. It's interesting. Babies with CMV are more likely to fail their newborn hearing screening, even if they don't end up having hearing loss at birth. And I think part of that is um, the hearing loss that can be associated with CMV. About 50% of it is late onset, meaning it's not, not always there at birth. And it can fluctuate, so which is totally wild. Um, so babies can, um, yeah, their level of hearing can fluctuate, babies with CMV. And so it's a little tricky. So even, even with hearing-targeted screening, which is better than nothing, you're only probably picking up half of babies who have CMV-associated hearing loss at birth, which is then about 7% of all babies with CMV. So better than nothing, but I think um, there's room to improve. And just thinking from the listener perspective, they're probably are interested, like how do they know if their hospital or their healthcare system offers this? Um, there are several states that actually have made this like a statewide legislative mandate. Um, so Utah has really led the forefront of this. Illinois, Virginia, New York. Well, now I'm going to forget <laughs> Iowa, um, I believe Connecticut. And then most recently, Minnesota has passed legislation that it's not um, enacted yet. They're still kind of in a planning stage, but they hope by early 2023, all babies in the state will be screened for CMV, not just the babies who have failed their, their hearing screen. So that's really a first for this country. They do it in, um, in the province of Ontario already um, in Canada, and then, um, you know, some other countries, it's standard of care. But, um, you know, we're, we're a little, um, little behind in that aspect. But there are a lot of health systems that do this anyways, not like that have nothing to do with a state mandate, because I think people are increasingly realizing that this is the right thing to do, you know, for the, um, the well-being of these babies. So I think asking the pediatrician, asking the OB, the person who's um, conducting the hearing screen would certainly know in the hospital. Um, and at, on the National CMV website, we have an ever-evolving list of um, health systems that uh, do these CMV screenings. But I can tell you it's not complete because there are just so many that are doing it now. Well, that's great information. And our listeners, like we encourage you to definitely check out the National CMV Foundation website, which will be in the show notes. The current studies seeks to understand the possible connection between exposure to CMV during pregnancy and the later risk for autism. Can you tell us more about this effort and what are you hoping to learn and what is the biological pathway? Yeah, that's a great question. So whenever I, um, I talk about autism, you know, I really, first I wanna make sure that people know that like as a developmental pediatrician, autism is like my bread and butter of my clinical practice. You know, bef before CMV, it was my first love. And I really approach autism not as, um, you know, so much as a medical diagnosis of, you know, checking off what is quote unquote wrong with a kid. 
I, I really think like I'm a big proponent of uh, neurodiversity. So the, you know, the concept that the different ways that people experience the world, there's not one that is lesser than the other. And I know this sounds very like, you know, like, hippy dippy or something, but, but truly, like, I, I think that people with autism really have unique and valuable experiences and it's not something that necessarily needs to be fixed. Um, but there are deficits or, you know, areas where skills are weaker with people in autism, like social communication skills, flexibility, things like that. And so that's what I kind of work on in my clinical practice. Um, all with the goal of not making them more normal. I'm doing air quotes. You can't, you can't hear me doing the air quotes, but just to make, you know, help them build skills so that they can um, have an easier time in interactions. So I always really want to preface any research around autism with that because it's a really sensitive topic and I want people to know that I'm not trying to prevent autism. But I have seen in my clinical practice a lot more kids with CMV who also have a diagnosis of autism. And, you know, it just made me wonder, well, is there a connection there? And when we think of other um, medical conditions that are associated with autism, for instance, like um, prematurity, babies who are premature do tend to have a higher risk of developing autism or, um, you know, babies who have perhaps had a very traumatic birth um, and had some oxygen deprivation. And so when we think about, you know, those um, risk factors for autism, you know, I see a lot of overlap with CMV. If you, if you really look into kind of the neurobiology or neuropathogenesis of CMV, so like how the virus basically attacks and invades the developing fetal brain cells, um, you know, there is some overlap with some of the mechanisms that have been proposed in autism. So, but, you know, in the literature right now, really, there is not a lot out there making the connection between those two. So I really just wanted to explore, you know, is there a connection? You know, I have families with kids with you know, high functioning autism all across the spectrum who spend years and years looking for a why, you know, looking for a genetic cause, looking for, you know, trying to understand, you know, where this came from. And, you know, that that's their own journey. And I don't, I don't want to comment on whether that's right or wrong. People have very strong opinions either way, but, you know, could it be CMV um, in some of these cases? And I, I want to be clear CMV is not the cause of all autism. You know, maybe there is a tiny sliver of autism that could be CMV associated. So um, in this study right now, I'm recruiting, we're hoping for 400 kids on the spectrum from Michigan, um, ages one through 15, and we're just gonna pull their dried blood spots. So again, stored in, in Lansing, the capital of Michigan, and we're gonna test them for CMV and just see, you know, is the prevalence greater um, in kids on the spectrum. Um, because we also know kids on the spectrum have a higher incidence of hearing loss. And, you know, if there is something that can be done earlier, if there's a way to get these kids into early intervention or, you know, have some sort of knowledge about their risk for autism, you know, earlier on, then I think, I think parents would be really, um, 
open to that. And again, not to eliminate or end autism, but really to help these kids, you know, thrive and, um, and make things as easy as possible for them. Dr. Pesh, thank you for sharing that. You are also the president-elect of the National CMV Foundation. What are some of the current activities or programs that people can get involved in your advocacy efforts? What are some recent advocacy efforts to support newborn screening for CMV? Is it being currently being reviewed to be added to the recommended uniform screening panel, also known as REFS? Yeah, thanks, thanks. Yeah, the, the National CMV Foundation definitely keeps me busy and it's amazing. You know, we, um, we have a very active and involved um, board and board of directors and scientific advisory committee. Um, we have two staff members and then everyone else, they do it, you know, just volunteer, you know, the boards volunteer. Um, our, our organization is really, really supported by these grassroots movements. It's a lot of parents, a lot of moms, CMB moms putting in the hours to support these efforts. So it, it's really incredible. Um, so yeah, we are involved in a lot of different advocacy efforts. Um, local in terms of raising awareness about CMV, you know, helping women understand and, and really everybody understand the risks in pregnancy and some of those risk reducing behaviors. Um, at the state level, um, Kentucky, there's a bill right now um, that is under consideration. Um, if you go to our website, we have a map of the US. We have these different color codings of states and you can see states where bills are kind of in process that have been enacted. And there we have state champions in every state. So if anybody wants to get involved from a state level, absolutely reach out, let us know. We have a fantastic program director who can connect you to the right people. Um, and yes, we did uh, submit um, a nomination package um, to the RUSP, and that's to nominate CMV to be included on the RUSP. And um, the process of getting included on that panel is a long one, and it's not kind of an overnight sort of thing at all. So um, right now, we submitted the initial package in, I believe it was 2018. This was before I was involved in the foundation. And, and then we resubmitted it with some edits uh, in October of 2021, and then did some more edits that were requested and now we're kind of holding our breath um, and just waiting for them to tell us it's complete, after which it goes to a committee that then decides whether or not they will really look into it in depth. So, you know, we're, we're hopeful and I'm really, um, I'm really hopeful that we will have a positive response. And even if it's not, yes, absolutely, this, this needs to happen right now, I think that um, you know, having this group of people review it and think about kind of the strengths and weaknesses of the evidence, like the science where it is right now, I think is really, really important. Because for me, like as a mom, I'm like, yeah, like screen all the babies. Absolutely. I don't care what the studies say. Right. But then as a scientist and like, you know, I'm like, no, we need, we need really strong evidence to make these big public health decisions. So, um, you know, I go back and forth. I think, I, I really think we will get there. Um, I do wonder, I think my timeline is like three to five years. I think we will see CMV on the rust, but I would love if it was sooner than that. 
Yeah, thank you for sharing with our listener about the process. And the reality of it is that it can take some time, but it's great that your foundation is um, how it was involved and also your research efforts in submitting that nomination package. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. It's been a great experience. So Dr. Pesh, are you involved in training the next generation of pediatricians? And what do you tell them about newborn screening research? Yeah, absolutely. Well, my focus is very narrow, you know, on, on CMV. And I think a lot of what I do is educate clinicians about CMV screening. And um, even, you know, it's interesting. I do a lot of talking about like newborn screening as in like when the child is in the hospital or shortly after their discharge screening for CMV, but then also um, requesting that dry blood spot for kids that are older. It's almost like this I wouldn't say like reverse newborn screening, but, you know, we have kids who um, have a sudden onset unilateral hearing loss at age four or five, and then we go back and check their blood spot and it's, it's positive. So um, for CMV, I mean, so it's really incredible um, that resource that we have. Um, But a lot of what I do is um, training. I also train fellows in developmental and behavioral pediatrics, and they uh, rotate with me in our uh, congenital CMV follow-up clinic. So I follow all our congenital CMV babies um, through the preschool years, just keeping a super close eye on their development. And then also helping kind of, I always say, quarterback their services, because there's a there are a lot of providers involved. And as a parent, for me, even, it was really hard to navigate. So, um, you know, we, we play that role for families, too, and act as a sounding board for all those questions. So um, it's been great to be able to teach my, um, my trainees about that as well. Dr. Pesh, like during this interview, it's been so fascinating to hear how you're, you're so busy as a clinician, a researcher, an advocate, and a parent. Do you have any stories of inspiration that keeps you going? Um, to share with our listeners who may be sometimes feeling stuck um, in like in what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I am so lucky because I live with an inspiration. You know, like my daughter, I see her every day, of course, and she is doing amazingly well. You know, she um, she is three and a half now. She has cochlear implants. She is, you know, she's walking, she's making jokes. She sings baby shark like all the time. You know, she has tantrums like in a norm, the way a normal or typical three-year-old would. And so it's funny because even those tantrums, I'm like, yes, that's developmentally appropriate. Like I'll take that as a win, you know? So for me, it's, kids like her and the kids that I see in my clinic that are really just, you know, inspirations and make, make it all very clear. I think for other folks that, you know, maybe don't have those personal connections or, you know, in, um, in my other research, I was looking at numbers and spreadsheets. And so it's a little bit tough to remember those personal kind of stories behind. Um, but I think it's really important. I, I think for me too, I have, um, I have found that uh, this is, it might sound so trivial, but, you know, following families that are affected by the disease on Instagram or social media, and not like I don't give them advice, but just like following people and understanding their stories and how this has affected their lives is really like inspirational and can kind of um, 
yeah, and can be motivational and can help kind of keep you going. So even if you don't live with someone affected by the disorder that you're researching, I think there's a lot of ways to, um, you know, to get inspired and to connect and to remind you, you know, why we do this work. Dr. Pesh, thank you for sharing your wisdom of inspiration with us. As we're coming up close to our interview, I'd like to end with our signature question to our guests. What does newborn screening research means to you? Yeah, so to me, it means offering hope to families and giving, giving babies and their families the best possible shot at, you know, a, a healthy life. And I think that's what like newborn screening research has really facilitated. And um, I think, you know, we can, we can keep getting better and better and expanding. And I know it's a, it's a hot topic, right? There's a lot of debate about who and what we should or shouldn't screen. But, um, you know, newborn screening, it saves lives and it changes lives. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful for this field of work. And Dr. Pesh, we're so grateful for your work and impact on newborn screening research. So thank you so much for joining us today on this interview. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Newborn Screening Spotlight. If you like our podcast, please subscribe and share an episode with your colleagues, friends, and family. Get involved. Stay informed. Help us advance discoveries. Together, Together let's, let's increase, increase the impact, impact of newborn screening research by listening to your stories. stories.